It is all about his name. Um, that's why we're here. That's why we serve. That's why we sing. That's why we learn together. And uh, that's what this is all about. Hey, I want to highlight what Pastor Eric had made mention about with next Sunday and uh, encourage you to be here. If you can't be here, make sure to listen online uh, next Sunday. Uh, just a couple things I'll note about it. Um, I think we're entering into one of the most uh, significantly structural moves uh, strategically for some time for us. I would even classify this as we've had uh, four big moves so far as a church. We've had uh, launching. That was kind of a big one. Uh, getting started. We went to two services. Uh, that was actually a very big strategic move. We purchased land. That was a big move. We uh, built a building and moved into it. That was a big move. And uh, I think actually structurally, strategically, as you'll come to see next Sunday, uh, we've been working in some big, big, exciting things to get us uh, ready to uh, move the ball forward is a ministry. Really excited about that. Pray you'll be here. And hey, if you want to, I would encourage you to wear orange next week. And uh, wear orange. And if you're not sure what that's about, just wear orange. <laughs> All right? And that's it. Hey, it's our fourth and final Sunday with Samson. And uh, uh, he is the 13th judge in the book of Judges. And uh, it's approximately the year 1050 B.C., right in that period of time. So it's been some time. But uh, we've, it's been about 300 years since we met Othniel, the first judge in the book of Judges. So it's been about three-plus decades. And this was supposed to be the period of time after God had placed his people in a new place, in the promised land place. This was to be decades of time, actually, centuries of time for them to be uh, growing and multiplying as far as an established, healthy people. United together, moving forward, strong things, healthy things grow. And that's what the Lord was intending here. But instead of that happening, instead of them becoming a healthy people, they actually became an, an increasingly stuck in themselves people, a people that became increasingly internally uh, uh, held. Uh, it's what I want to do. It's what I think. It's what, what, what I uh, desire. And the book of Judges is this three plus centuries of a living picture of what God's people look like when they are not who they say they are. It's easy to say who we want to be, but when we are not that on a consistent, I mean, we're growing and changing, no one's perfect, we're all sinners saved by the cross, and, and yet we still struggle with so many things. That's not the issue. It, it, it's yet be turning so inward, and, and God's people really have lost view of their vow before the Lord and their call by the Lord. They've lost their view of their vow before the Lord and their call by the Lord. And uh, I would say, I'll be referencing a little bit later, it kind of starts looking like some of the churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, where they have just lost their way. And um, so here we are, we're with Samson. Uh, last Sunday, I uh, brought up this image of the Hulk, and uh, you know, it's kind of fun. There are a number of interesting correlations between the characters of the Hulk and Samson, as we've read so far. Uh, but I don't think that Samson was likely green, and I don't think that Samson likely looked like a, a, a roided up uh, WWF wrestler. 
And um, while sometimes these images can help remember things, and that's part of what I wanted to have happen here, I also want to bring and remind us that uh, Samson is not a comic book character. Okay, he's not a comic book character. So with that, I, I would say, and it really, in, by the way, in chapter 16, he's probably maybe 40 years old, uh, somewhere around that period of time. So maybe instead of the big, uh, green, ugly comic book character dude, maybe he looks a little bit more like this guy that we'll have on the screen. Who is he? I have no idea, but we're just going to say, you know what? He was a real guy. He was a real guy. He kind of had a hair thing. And um, we're going to learn more about that today. Uh, but he's a real guy. And um, I think while Samson, and I want for you to think of this picture, not the Hulk picture uh, today, uh, Samson likely did not say out loud uh, that he was the great I am. But as we saw last Sunday and the couple Sundays before, I think we saw with Samson this guy who really saw himself by his actions that he put himself as the great I am of his own self. And um, I say that because I think we've seen him as viewing himself as the sovereign one. He decides and determines his moves. He determines his ways. He determines how things are going to go down in his purposes. Why? Because when you view yourself as the great I am, you become your own sovereign one. Also, I think Samson, as we've seen so far, views himself as kind of the warrior I am. I mean, we've always seen him. He's the one who fights his fights. Uh, he he kind of makes the fights, and he fights his fights. And, and uh, he writes his own wrongs. And he's kind of his own great warrior I am. And that's what great warrior people who think that they are that will do. I write the wrongs that have been laid out on me. I do that. Uh, also, he was his own pursuer, I am. Uh, when you are your own great I am, using that terminology, you pursue what you want in the way that you want for the reasons that you want. Why? Because you are sovereign, you are warrior, and you can pursue what you want. And uh, he did. Do you remember, uh, those of us, I don't even know if they have this anymore. Obviously, I don't do the shopping, grocery shopping in our house, but remember concentrated orange juice? As a kid, do they even make that anymore? Do they? Really? Cool. I remember as a kid, we'd have concentrated orange juice, and it's like, you know, it's about this big, and you take it out, and you pull the thing out, and boom, you know, this big chunk of orange juice piles into this thing, and then it mixes all around. I might grab a hold of that and say this. Samson, as well as, frankly, I think the judges that we've been seeing are the concentrated version of what's going on with the whole of God's people. It's kind of like, you want to know what's going on with God's people? Take a look at the judges of the day. And I think the book of Judges is keying in on each of them. It's not just about a person, but it's about the whole thing. It's about the whole pitcher of orange juice uh, by looking at one concentrated can. Okay, I'm going to leave the illustration done there. But today we're in Judges chapter 16, so turn there if you're not there already. Judges chapter 16. Um, we're going to see more dysfunction uh, with Samson, a kind of dysfunction in HD. We uh, are in the last Sunday of it, and I want to suggest that we enter this seeing more of Samson's uh, dysfunction in his relationship with the Lord for the reason that we would learn and grow, because there is a lot of Samson in each of us. 
There's a lot of Samson in me, a lot of Samson in us. Well, we're chapter 16, always thinking of context. Last Sunday, chapter 15, it was the time of the wheat harvest. Uh, Samson goes to uh, visit his supposed wife. He, at least he thinks she's his wife at the time. He learns from her dad that her dad gave her in marriage because Samson threw a hulky hissy fit um, and killed 30 of the men at the his wedding, and um, so he gets all mad about it, and, and, and he does what everybody else does in these kinds of things. When you get mad, you go, you get some jackals, and you tie them together and burn crops, right? And uh, so they did that whole thing, and then the Philistines are furious. Um, they make um, a raid into the tribe of Judah, the Judites in, in that area of, of where Samson kind of comes from. They're stunned by it all. They don't know why they're getting raided from it. They come to learn that they're getting raided and going into war from the uh, Philistines because of Samson. So they arrange it to hand Samson over to the Philistines. He was supposed to be their leader, judge, helping establishing them to become a united people. Now they're handing him over because he's a pain. And in the process of him handing him over, then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He kills a, a thousand Philistines uh, with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, after doing that, you can see in 15, he makes this, Samson makes this bizarre riddle, uh, doxology about himself um, in it. And then he prays of his thirst to the Lord. Remember that? If you're here, he's like, he makes this riddle me this, riddle me that, I'm awesome. And then he throws it down. He's like, I'm thirsty. And he calls out to God, God, give me water, because I'm your servant, and in grace. The Lord does. The Lord does. And um, chapter finish, 15 finishes with verse 20, uh, where we're told that Samson is judge of Israel for 20 years. Grace held in that. Well, we're in chapter 16. Uh, let me get started here. Verse 1. Samson, uh, after this, he's, after the, by the way, this statement, he is judge in Israel for the Philistine, in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw, oh, it just keeps going. And there he saw a prostitute. And went in with her. He's supposed to be a leader. He is a leader. Uh, Gaza, by the way. Uh, Gaza, on a map, it's uh, 45 miles from his home in, uh, in, in the Philistine territory. Why is he going there? I mean, friends, understand, he didn't have a car. He didn't have a train. He didn't have an airplane. He didn't, I mean, 45 miles. We're not quite sure why he's going there. Uh, but I am just going to make an observation with this. Um, this is following right after 20 years of, uh, of judge. I don't know if this is after that or in that or some time in this, but um, in it, I'll just say, uh, Samson has clearly been in the limelight for some period of time. And um, I'm going to be a little sensitive here to the guy in it because uh, of what happens of the limelight. Um, when people are in the limelight, just two quick observations, just observation for me, um, as I've been learning more from other people, watching people, and honestly, even some of my own experience here with some things. Uh, many uh, who live in some kind of limelight scene uh, kind of have two tendencies. One is they feast off of it, and it just feasts uh, their pride. 
and um, they can't have enough of it, and they want more uh, for themselves, and it just becomes a pride-driving thing when you're in the limelight, and that can very happen. Uh, oftentimes, though, uh, it's on kind of on almost another end of it, where when you're in the limelight, there's a weightiness, and there's a, it may not be uh, believable to you, but I'm just telling you there's a loneliness in it that is staggering. And as I'm getting to know more and more pastors of churches much larger than ours, this is often the, the trial of, I'll just say, uh, leaders in the limelight of things. The weight gets weightier. The loneliness gets lonelier. Oh, and out of it, you just want to disappear. And you just want someone to know you who doesn't know you. Um, in that, sorry, tender moment there with what's going on. Um, and it, that's for me. Sometimes in it, I just want to disappear. It, it, it's, it's consuming in it. And sometimes I wonder here if Samson is in that kind of a moment. I have no idea. But Samson, I just know this. What are you doing going to Philistine territory 45 miles away and going to a prostitute. Dude, something's missing with his vow and his call. Can we agree with that? Something's missing. Oh, verses 2 and 3. The Gazites, Gazites, (laughs) I'm going on. We're told, the people from Gaza, we're told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place. What place? The place where he's in with the prostitute. Awkward just to read about it. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night. Oh, it's just weird. Saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two outposts and pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. Uh, Let me explain some of this because this gives you some insight into the Hulk thing. We only think of the, what we're going to see at the end of the chapter, the pushing pushing of the pillar thing going on. But, But friends, get what's going on. For some reason he gets up and somehow he's able to get out of, even though it's surrounded, to get out of this house where he's at with his prostitute, and he leaves. Now, cities in those days, a city like Gaza, would have it where there's only basically one gate into the city, walls all around. So you just don't like, it's not like in a tent and you just go 360 degrees anywhere you want. Uh, So it's this thing to where what would happen in it is there would be an entry gate, walls all around. The entry gate would kind of have this like, this, 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 old uh, type of almost like in a, in a Europe castle type of thing where they would have this series of at least kind of two uh, uh, guard stands before the gate on the inside. And there would be two of them, so in other words, four guards, one on each side, uh, two on each side, or there would be three of them. So to exit from this, it's not like it's so ancient that you just go run out the gate. It's, there are guards there at night to protect the people. And so what had to happen was is he would have to get by these guards to the gate. So obviously with what's going on, the Lord was in on this somehow, 
the sovereign Lord was in on this, that these guys were either asleep or something going on. We're not told all the details, not told everything we want to know, but just what we need to know. But somehow he got to the place and he comes up past these at least four guards who are to stay awake all night. And then he gets to the gate and this gate is not like a cattle gate, okay? It's not like this lightweight little thing. It's a gate to keep people, lots of people out as a safety thing, and however it happens, he comes in, and he just shoulders under it, whatever, and just, and hoists this thing up, and and then he comes, and here's the interesting part that the text tells us. He does it, you would think that he would just go through these couple things, and then he would, however he did it, grab this ginormous gate. The dude is strong, uh, empowered, uh, and so he, and you would think he would pick it up, and take it and just like, huh, and then head off. No, no, no. When it talks about with Hebrew, and let's bring up the next slide. When it talks about in Hebrew and with that, it actually is saying that he went nearly 40 miles carrying the gate. 40 miles and 2,000 feet ascent. Now, Hebron was 40 miles, so maybe it was the mountain across, so maybe let's give him some slack. Let's just give him a lot of slack. It was only 35 miles. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) He carried the thing 35 miles up over that grade, 2,000 feet. What was it? The the Chase Tower, which I think is going to be called the... the, um, Salesforce Tower is, I think, 830 feet. It's about two and a half of those tall. It's like he's carried this ginormous gate 35 miles up the top of two and a half of those. Why? (laughs) Seriously, Samson, why? I've got to be careful here. I don't want to get too far into sanctified imagination here. But I think it's just to show how awesome he was. And why is the text telling us this whole thing? Because the text is telling us all of this verses 1 through 3 to give us the motivation for what's about to take place. Okay? Now imagine. You're in a city. You're surrounded where he's not doing what he should be or doing what he shouldn't be doing. He, he leaves. He takes their gate, which is the safety net, carries it 35 miles and drops it. And if you lived in that city, especially in that day, you would be in, uh, let's say, uh, deep theological language, very honked off, (laughs) right? You would be mad. Don't you dare insult us like this. And he did. So we take that, and now we move in. Verse 4, what are the first two words? After this, or whatever your uh, translation has there. In other words, after this, it's connecting that to what we're about to enter into. After this, he loved a woman. There we go, boy. That's Samson. When in doubt, love a woman. Samson's theme. Uh, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines, by the way, the first time any of the women related to Samson in these from chapter 13 through chapter 16, first time a woman is given a name. This is the central woman character in Samson's life here. Verse 5, and the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Delilah, seduce him. Now, why would they know to do that? Because Samson's life has shown 
hey, you can seduce Samson. You may not be able to arm wrestle him out. You may not be able to beat him out in a wrestling match, but you can seduce this boy. And he's proven it to be the case. So they tell her, hey, seduce him and and see where his great strength lies. Well, how do they know about his great strength? Because of verses 1 through 3 and what's happened before. Okay? And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give each of... and we will each give you a thousand pieces of shekels of silver. I'm sorry, of silver here. So a few things going on. Notice what they're wanting to be able to accomplish with him here. After what's taken place, they want to seduce him. Uh, they want to humble him. Uh, seduce, that's an action. Uh, they, they want to find out where his great strength lies. Because they know that this guy is not just strong. You understanding? Because they know that there is some back in that day, they probably would have in modern day times said, he has a magical power of strength. We have to find out what that is. If they knew that he was just a really strong guy, they wouldn't be saying what they're saying. They're trying to find out what is the source of this man's supernatural, magical uh, a strength that's going on. So they want to seduce him. They, they want to discover what's going on. Then they want to overpower him. Then they want to bind him. Then they want to humble him. I have the English Standard Version here with that. And I understand here and, and even some of the other languages, the, the, the word in the Hebrew has its root uh, formed into the idea of torture him. Okay, so this isn't like, you know what, we want to sit him down in the corner with a dun's hat on, and we want to say, no, 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 you need to be more humble. No, 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 they want to find him, and they want to shame him as rough and as hard and as torturous as they possibly can, because he shamed them, and that's the way they play this game, and that's the way the world plays this game, by the way. And then they say, we each will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Um, this is the lottery deal here. you got to understand. What's going on is these are the governors of what was called the Pentapolitan. Penta, five. In other words, it was the five major cities. These are the governors from those five major cities who were making this deal. They're each saying, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Uh, Younger says that in that day... Um, let me find it here, that in that day, it is 550 times the average annual wage, is what 1,100 pieces of silver was, 550 times the annual wage. Okay, so let's put that into a picture here. I'm just going to assume an easy round number. Let's just say an annual wage for a household is 50,000 times 550, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, lottery, $27.5 million dollars. What does that tell you? It tells a couple things. They are mad and they want this guy bad. Also, it's telling you, why would Delilah do this? 27 and a half ching-chings, right? With what's going on here. That's got to motivate a person who could give a rip about integrity and it's all about stuff and world and ease. Because that's what's going on here. She's just had the lottery come to her. 
Hey, Delilah, seduce him. See where his strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you each 1,100 pieces of silver. Verse 6. Here we go. Attempt number one. So Delilah said to Samson, so this is a little time later. We don't know exactly how much later, but Delilah talks to Samson and says, Hey, honey, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one... Uh, could subdue you. It's first shot. There's part of this, you know, if you're interested in someone where you're like, I understand the question. I mean, the boy hauled a gate 35 miles up 2,000 feet, and he's your man. It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, maybe they were bowling, or they were out on a date, and she's just like, dude, you throw that ball like unbelievable. Can you talk, talk to me, talk to me here. How, where does your strength come from? I want to be careful here, and I don't want to jump on her too fast, because, uh, uh, well, actually we do, because uh, uh, she's trying to get him, but you understand why she's asking the question in this cozy little relationship that's going on. Uh, verse 7. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Why is he doing this? I mean, it's not true. We know of the story, it's not true. But at the same time, as we've gone through this over the last four Sundays, you're kind of like, it doesn't surprise me with Samson at all. He loves riddles. Riddle me this, riddle me that. He loves playing with people. It, it, it shows how awesome he is to himself. It shows this is the great I am speaking right here. I am so great that I'm going to toy with you. And not ask a question like, why are you asking that? Like, why are you asking about that someone could subdue me? I would understand the question of, how are you so strong? Because my, you have big muscles. But Samson, he's having a blast, verse 8. And then the lords of the Philistines brought out uh, up to her seven fresh bowstrings. How long did that take? Probably not that long, but they go get fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. And she bound him, uh, and she bound him with them. Uh, uh, now she had been lying in ambush and in her chamber. So is he just like <laughs> having a gas with this whole thing? Yeah, girl. Tie me up. She had men laying in ambush in the inner chamber. Why? Because she had 27 and a half million about to be discount or added to her uh, bank account. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Now there's an exclamation point. So the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as the thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 10, then Delilah. 27 and a half million. Then Delilah said to Samson at some point, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies, and I'm hurt. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. Was he sleeping in both of these or what's going on? Bound him with them and said to, the Philist said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! 
And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Attempt number three. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me. I am not a happy girlfriend. And you have told me lies, and it hurts. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, why are you asking and doing this? Seriously, is this dude dumb? Or has over a lifetime of being so about himself, uh, he's lost all sensibility. And he said to her, and here's, actually here's it, uh, if you weave the seven locks of my head, it's getting closer. If you remember with Samson, as a Nazarite vow, there's been three things. There's been a, a don't drink wine, there's been a, a don't touch dead things, and there's been a, a don't cut your hair. And, and so far in it, he's drunk wine, and he's really at these parties at the Philistines, and, and, he's, uh, and he's touched dead stuff. There's been one thing so far that he hasn't broken. And I just want to note this. The grace of God is in all that. Grace is God, of God is in all that. Because God could have like halted the whole thing after he messed it up one time. And then when he messed the next one up, the grace of God could have just like ended right there. But God is still patient with his people. By the way, they are still his people. He hasn't cast them out. He hasn't renamed them people of Beelzebub. He is still their people, even in their continued unfaithfulness. However, we are now talking about his hair. Seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it right tight to the pin, and then I shall become weak and shall be like any other man. Dude, you are getting way too close in this. By the way, back in the day, people are like, how did she weave it in? Okay, he's got really long hair, and he falls asleep, and they had horizontal, and they had vertical uh, weaving machines, and so this is probably a vertical weaving machine where actually you could move it over. They generally had like four posts to them and kind of be there and, and hair close enough that, that she could do it. There's no problem in having it done, verse 14. So while he slept, we're told, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with a pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson! And he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Attempt number four, verse 15. And she said to him, Honey, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and I'm embarrassed and I'm hurt and I'm mad. And you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, <laughs> I'm not going there, <laughs> and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. 
not going. Verse 17, and he told her all his heart and said to her, hey honey, a razor has never come to my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Friends, this is huge. Because there's times if you don't know the end of the story and you've been reading the story, there's a part of you, and even some commentators talk about it, it's like, did he really know his vow? He knew his vow and his call. You see it? Underline it. In the middle of verse 17 there. For I have been a Nazarite to God, his vow, from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then strength will leave me. He knew his vow. He knew his call. All along, every day, in the prostitute's house, with with doing everything that he's done, he's known his vow, he's known his call. This is not an issue of not understanding his vow or understanding his call. It is not an issue of him having a lack of information about his vow or about his call. He knew. And in it, you just have to ask yourself, how is it that someone who knows the vow that they've made before the Lord, how is it that someone knows of their high calling before the Lord? How is it that last Sunday, as we saw in the text, or going back to chapter, uh, end of chapter 13, how is it that someone who, who understands their preordainedness by the Lord, who understands their blessing by the Lord, who has been stirred by the Lord, how is it that someone like that can live like that? And I think you know what's behind my mind as I say that. How can I do that? How can you do that in Christ? Having come to know Christ as your Savior, if you've received Christ as your Savior, understanding your sin and your separateness from the Lord and what the Lord has done through Jesus Christ and receiving him as your Savior and, and, and making a vow of as many as received him, of making a, Lord, I would, need, I would need to receive your gift of salvation. He has paid the price. I can't earn my way. I'm a sinner before a holy God. Oh, Lord, and, and I receive you. And having that vow there and out, out of that understanding that that vow is not just about me cashing chips in to win the lottery, that that vow is involving the fact that I am to be following him, and not only that, the vow is that I am to be a disciple of Christ, but even beyond that, the, the, the call is that I am to be a disciple maker of Christ. How is anyone able to understand their vow, know their vow, and know their call, and not do it? And I am guilty. And I'm just going to say straight up, so are you. And it's really easy to get hard on Samson here. It's really hard to see yourself here. And I call that we do. I call that we do. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, 
She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. She could tell. Ladies, you know that. You just know when, you know better than guys too often. We're just kind of like, la, 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 la. You just get it when someone's like, they just opened their heart, didn't they? Verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. <laughs> I don't quite understand this. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He thought something about his condition and his reality that wasn't real. He assumed some things. And by the way, I want to note here that the Lord's omnipresence is different than his manifest presence. The Lord is there, but his manifest presence, the, the, the omnipresence, the Lord sees all, the, he knows all, he's in all places at all times. But his general presence does not mean the same as his manifest presence. And I just don't have the time to go into that in depth today. Uh, but being around is not being with. I could say it that way. Being around does not necessarily mean I'm with. Being there does not necessarily mean behind it. In Revelation 2, the Lord tells the church in Ephesus that if they do not return to their first love, that he will remove their lampstand from its place. Revelation 3 tells to the local church in Laodicea that he will spit them out of his mouth if they continue to be a lukewarm people. By the way, I do not believe and I'm not inferring and not trying to say that this is about losing one's salvation. It's not what's talking about here. God's people are still God's people here. But this is about losing the I am with you manifest presence and power of the Lord, his hand of blessing. And being in Christ does not mean that the Lord's with power and presence is there. His omnipresence is there. We can be sealed and saved, but yet there's a thing in this where I would encourage you to do some study. Go look at Ichabod. And how the Lord pulled his presence away. And Samson is assuming that the Lord is with him here. He's with him just like he was with me in the past. He assumed wrong. And friends, I'm sad to say that I think that's the sad reality in many local churches today. That even proclaim the gospel. Or the Lord has left that building, if you will. And by the way, it can be a sad reality in God's people. Thinking that the Lord is manifest here. The Lord is manifest with me. In fact, maybe his full blessing is pulled away. I'm not talking his ceiling pulled away. I'm not talking his saving pulled away. 
I think you're understanding what I'm talking about. Verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out many as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes. It's just intriguing. And brought him down to Gaza. Oh, blown back to where we were before at the beginning of the chapter. And bound him with bronze shackles. And, and he ground at the mill in the prison. And Delilah bought her mansion. On the ocean front. Verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It gets so low and so discouraging and so hard, and then there's this odd comment. So is God's power in the hair? You know, sometimes we live that way. You know, if I do this, then that happens. You know, this is how it is. This is you know, if I have a quiet time today, God loves me. If I don't, God's out. Pastor Doug just said, if God... If I don't have my devotions today, God's manifest presence leaves me today. Not said that. But we can kind of be this way. Uh, I'm going to keep going because the narrator just leaves it there. Like, might there be some hope? Uh, verse 23. Now, the lords of the Philistines gathered at some time after this to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. No, actually, the sovereign Yahweh has allowed all this to take place. Verse 24, and when the people saw him, they praised their God. How sad is that? God's people are acting in such a way that pagans think that their false God is strong. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And, and when their hearts were merry, um, drunk, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. Don't know what he did, but I'm sure it was humiliating. And then they made him stand between two pillars and Samson said to the young man, underline it, who held him by the hand. Do you see the irony here? Here is this guy that is hauled off a city gate for 35 miles up 2,000 feet, and now there's a young man, like, like, like a boy man next to him holding his hand, who's the one in charge. Oh, the sad irony. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And, all the roof, and on the roof there were 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. He's giving us the information to understand the devastation. Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord. Second time we've seen him do that. Last time it was pretty self-centered. Let's see what happens. And Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. I get, kind of get that in light of what's taking place. And please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged. Oh, dude. What about the glory of the Lord? What about the glory of the Lord? 
Friends, this is what happens when you get stuck in viewing life through the lens of you again and again and again, day in, week out, month out, year out, year out, year out, year out. It just becomes natural. It's like a car that's driven down the exact same gravel road a thousand million times, and you can almost take your hands off the steering wheel, and it'll just go by itself that way. And yet when you want to change, it's hard. Because when you're headed down that gravel driveway, you got to grab a hold of the steering wheel and you got to it out. And it's awkward and it's hard and it doesn't feel right and you think everything's going to fall apart. But then you got to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. And sometimes you go right back into the old tracks again, but you get and you move it again and you got to rerun the line. And Samson here has not done that. He hasn't been that. And that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Verse 29, Samson grabbed the middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down, took him and brought him up, buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had judged Israel 20 years. So what would the Lord want us to learn from this? What can we learn from Samson here and wrap this four weeks up with him? What can we learn from him about vertical relationship with the Lord? Why did Samson do relationship with the Lord the way that he did? And I would say it this way, because he viewed the Lord the way he did. Friends, this is really easy right at this point to take this whole thing very horizontal and make it very moralistic. But instead, I really want us to finish here with Samson in just a few minutes of just taking this vertical. How did Samson see the Lord? How did Samson view doing relationship with the Lord? I would term it this way. Three errors Samson had in his view of his vow and call. Number one, he had an anthropocentric view. Can't even say it. He had an anthropocentric view of life in the Lord. Samson saw life, and life with the Lord is all about Samson. His relationship with the Lord is all about him. It's not Samson about the Lord. It's the Lord is about me. It's he came and died for me to bring me my best life now. Yes, I am going after that. Because that thinking is messing up the understanding of the gospel. We live in a war zone. If you think this time of living in this life is the ultimate time, you don't have the foggiest clue on what ultimate is because victory's coming. This isn't about what I think is right for me is what is right for me. Samson saw himself as a sovereign warrior pursuer And his life fit that. And friends, we know the war. We know the war of the gospel even going on. 
The gospel is being proclaimed today so often as come to Jesus and you'll have health, wealth, and prosperity and never hurt, never had a hard time. Check is in the mail. When you get home today, it'll be all cash and it'll be big if you just receive Jesus. Friends, that is not the gospel. It's the only good things happen to God's people. Man, I'm in trouble then. It's my problem is that I need to love me more. And the Lord is here to help me love me more. The local church is about me and my preferences and what I want and where I want to serve and how I want to serve. And I just it goes on. It's really sad today. Samson was anthropocentric and and we know that we go there too, don't we? Revelation 3, Church of Laodicea, you say to yourself, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing Jesus is saying to them that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Doug, I didn't come to church to hear that. No, but you need to hear that because there is a great God who loves pitiable people who want to see him big. Also mechanistic. I think we see in Samson this mechanistic thing. There's this underlying thinking, thinking about relationship with the Lord that uh, uh, with Samson and God's people. I'm just going to kind of quickly here. It's like this formulaic thing that's underlying. And it's like, you know, I, I, I was given a Nazarite thing. Uh, I was blessed by the Lord. And, and so I'm good. It's all good, and, and, and now it's done. It's, it's I grew up believing in God, or I went forward and prayed a prayer, or I was baptized as an infant, or I went through confirmation, or I did some Jesus dance, so I'm good with that. All's good because that's done. No, this is relationship with God of the universe that is so much more than just some mechanistic relationship where it's like, I got that done, check, on to the next thing, check. Yeah, but Doug, James chapter 1, you'll be blessed in the doing. Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 10, there will be tribulation for those who do wrong. There will be blessing for those who do right. So if you do right, you get blessing. If you do wrong, you don't. You know, choose to sin, choose to suffer. You know, all these kinds of things. Hey, I've said them. I've taught them. And yet be careful because it can build an idea in it that we put a penny in, God gives a gumball back. Who wants to have a marriage relationship like that? Maybe you have a relationship like that. And it's not very good, is it? The Lord wants to have a real relationship in it. Daniel Block here comments, I uh, got on the screen. As we have witnessed so many times before, contrary to the reader's expectations in this book, God operates not on the basis of traditional orthodoxy, this idea that teaches that obedience brings blessing, disobedience a curse. On the contrary, like the nation of Israel herself, Samson deserves no consideration from God. He didn't deserve any of the water out of the rock. Yet Yahweh hears and delivers time and time again. His agenda for his people cannot fail despite the people's seeming determination to commit national suicide. Oh, friends, if it turns formulaic and mechanistic, where is grace? Where is the love? Revelation chapter 2, local church, Ephesus. I know your works. I know you're doing, but you've abandoned your first love. And lastly, isolationistic. I think we see in Samson, he's just doing life all by himself. He's alone. You notice that? He's always alone. Everything he does, he's doing it all alone. 
And I just asked, where is Samson doing relationship with God's people in the whole four chapters here besides messing with them? Samson is, write this verse down, Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against all sound judgment. And I just honestly here, I want to put it on the tables. We're finishing up with this guy. There's so many things to learn. I just have to ask, is that you? Is that the idea that, you know what, it's just about me and the Lord. You know, we're doing our thing. I don't really need this thing. No, no, here's the interesting thing is the Lord says you do. No, I do life alone. But the Lord says you're not to. But Doug, I'm not a people person. I get that. But Jesus is. But Doug, people are messy. They're broken. They're annoying. They're complicated. They're time-consuming. They can hurt you, misuse you. They can see you as a commodity. They're tiring. They're frustrating. They're disappointing. They cause you to wonder if it's all worth it. I get that and you get that, don't you? But what if Jesus had thought that going down the Via Dolorosa? We would all be headed to hell. But Doug, it's easier to keep a distance. It's easier to live like Switzerland. Plus, I've been hurt and I've been burned by people. I've been burned by church and I get that, trust me. But I just call you to see the cross. He gets it. So a final word. So how should I view my vow and call? New word. As awesome-tastic. It kind of fits with the other ones. And go ahead, look it up. It's a real word. Mm -hmm. Urban Dictionary. It says the ultimate degree of awesome. Listen, we are to view, if you are in Christ, we are to view our vow and our call as awesome-tastic. The ultimate version, the ultimate degree of awesome. There is nothing more awesome. Oh, and by the way, he's not the awesome one. Uh, The Lord is the awesome one. Remember, let's go to the next slide. He is. He is the sovereign warrior one, right? The Lord is the awesome one that's in this. And I just ask myself, where is the awe of God in Samson's life and God's people's? Where is the awe of God? Where where is the awesome-tastic, delightful surrender under the Lord? Where, where do we see it in Judges? That's what's missing. When people do not see the Lord in awe and as awesome, complacency makes sense. Because to tell you the truth, there are a whole lot more things exciting if the Lord is not that exciting. How you see the Lord tells the story of how you live for the Lord. If you want to know why am I doing life the way I'm doing it right now, it's how you see the Lord. One person summarized the book of Judges this way. When the people of God do not see the works of God, they lose the wonder of God, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. 
When the people of God do not see the works of God, they lose the wonder of God, awesome-tastic, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And Samson lost sight of who the Lord is and what he has done. Listen, why did Abraham go to sacrifice his own son? Because God was awesome-tastic in his eyes. Why did Noah spend a hundred years building an ark? Because God was awesome-tastic. Why did Moses, not looking for a leadership job, do what he did? Because he came to see that God was awesome-tastic. Why did Job respond the way that he did? At the end of Job chapter 1. Because not understanding it, not liking it, not enjoying it, he saw God is awesome-tastic. Why did the apostles end up doing what they did with their lives? Because God was awesome-tastic in their view. And so, Doug, what do I do if I'm struggling to see God as awesome-tastic? You need to see your God. And you can do that by diving into God's Word. Go to Genesis chapter 1 and see an awesome creator, God. Go to, to Job 38 through 40. And take a look when God sits Job down. He says, Job, you've lost sight of how awesome-tastic I am. That's in the Hebrew. And he lays it out. Then Job's like, you're right, you're right. I lost sight of how awesome-tastic you are. He says, no, 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 I haven't finished. Sit down, I got some more. And Job lost how awesome-tastic. Go to Mark chapter 4. I preached up a favorite passage. I preached up in Elgin, uh, Rolling Meadows. And, and it was one of the, the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. They're getting across. They're like, we're going to die. We're going to die. They come back to Jesus. Don't you care? Siopa, pefimoso. And he stops the rain. He stops the sea. And they're all standing around. And they go floating the rest of the way asking this question. Who is that? Because he's more awesome-tastic now than he was a little bit ago. Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, Philippians 2 and 3, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 1, 4 and 5, go see Jesus. If you don't see Jesus, you don't see the war, you don't see the victory. If you want to see the war and see the victory, you got to start with seeing Jesus. Sorry, but laid out on the table. It's time for us to increasingly see Jesus. And you only see him by going back to here and taking it serious and diving into it and show me your awesome-tasticness. Jesus is this big. He only matters that much. And I just want to challenge you this week. Let's go from here to here this week. And here's where I want to finish. The worship team can come on up here. I'm on way over. And worship team could come up here. And I want to finish like we kind of did last Sunday where um, we're, we're going to sing a song together. And, and I want for you to follow the song. Watch what will happen. Watch what will happen with this song. We're going to sing the whole song here. Watch what will happen. We're going to start out and you're going to hear us singing words about the cross. And then it moves beyond the cross and into what the Lord has done through the cross. And then it's going to get to the point where it even talks about what the Lord's return in it. And just watch what happens within our own soul. Watch what happens when we go back and we get a view of what the Lord has done and his real awesome-tasticness. You just can't help it, but it just, it's just, it's just going to send us out these doors ready to live in a different way because he's more awesome than we, even when we came in this morning. So I'm riled up.
Stand up and let's sing.